Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. It's Graham Brown here from Asia Tech Podcast, broadcasting to you from Singapore. And I think a great place to start our journey into the Asian century. What I'm going to do on coming episodes of Asia Tech Podcast is talk about Asia, in particular, some of the themes about the Asian century, namely hyper-competition. What is it? How is it affecting the new models of business? Digital transformation in Asia. Who's getting it right? Who's getting it wrong? And what does it mean for the rest of the world? So we'll talk about the Asian century, why we need to focus on Asia, not just Asians focusing on Asia, but the world. Now, this is no longer the warehouse of the world. Let's have a look at what's going on. I think people are aware of, for example, Alibaba. You're aware of Jack Ma and his funny face appearing at places like Davos from time to time, which is great. I think it's now we have another narrative out there in the media about Asia, which is not necessarily what's been told in the last 10 years. Now we have these new entrepreneurial faces of Asia, which are in many ways friendly and relatable. And we have stories out there. We don't just have Mark Zuckerberg or Mark Cuban, you know, the usual suspects. But there's also this second generation of entrepreneurs coming out of Asia, which I think are really exciting. And their startups that people are less familiar with. Take, for example, Gojek. Now, Gojek are an Indonesian startup originated in Jakarta, which is one of the mega cities of Asia. I'll talk about mega cities in a minute. Now, Gojek are the Indonesian grab, a ride-hailing app. And the reason why it's a particular interest from Indonesia is because if you've ever been to Indonesia, and I, I went to Indonesia first in 1995 when Suharto was still in power. And um, it's, you know, back then it was very much a frontier market. It still is to some degree now, but, you know, things have moved on. And one of the challenges of being a rapidly emerging economy is traffic. If you ever land at CGK Airport and try and get across town, it takes hours. I have Indonesian friends who have a number of times abandoned their cars in the middle of Jakarta in traffic, either because of flooding, which is often quite bad in the rainy season, but also the traffic is so bad that they will leave their car and walk home. And that's a real systemic problem in many of these markets in Asia. Look at Jakarta, look at Bangkok, Ho Chi Minh City, and so on. So it means like getting the ride hailing app right is a real challenge. Gojek started as a motorbike ride hailing app, so Ojek being the motorbike, and it emerged from there. And what's interesting about why I'm talking about Gojek is firstly, it's from Indonesia and not China. And secondly, just look at what Gojek does. Compare Gojek to Uber or even Grab. Grab's the Malaysian startup, which is now based here in Singapore, um, the local equivalent of Uber. So it's Gojek versus Grab at the moment in Southeast Asia. I'm just going to read you now a list of services that Gojek offer. I'm reading out of Wikipedia. So this is as of May 2019. So Gojek offers GoPay. That's nothing new. These 
super apps, these platforms all offer some kind of payment services. GoRide, which is an online motor taxi service, um, they've got a million signed up in their fleet at the moment. Um, the ride-hailing service for cars, which is GoCar, GoFood, which is instant food delivery with 250,000 merchants across Indonesia, GoFood Festival, which is an online food court. If you ever go to any of those hawker centers in Southeast Asia, you'll understand what that's about. Um, it's an online version of that. GoMart, which is grocery shopping, GoShop, which is like GoMart, but you can list other stuff, which is it's a bit like Amazon Marketplace off the main platform go send for courier go box for picking up large boxes items single axle box trucks go ticks for movies go med for medicine go massage if you want a personal masseuse go clean for house cleaning made go glam hairstylist go auto auto repair i haven't even got through half of the list yet now what's going on Indonesia has 265 million people, which is roughly 6% of Asia. What's going on is hyper-competition. I mentioned that at the top of the show, and I, I think it's worth spending a little bit of time talking about what hyper-competition is and why it is important to watch. Now, hyper-competition is a type of competition where the normal rules of competition don't apply. It's not a, a, a case where we're growing the pie and a rising tide raises all boats. It's a case where we're growing the pie and it's winner takes all. So whoever wins the ride-sharing space will own all of that market and all of its respective aligned vertical sectors. And hyper-competition is particularly relevant here in Asia. Let me explain. You go to China and we see apps, services like Alibaba, Tencent emerging from China, even JD, for example. And whenever Western media hears about these apps emerging, the first thing they say is about protectionism, that these apps had a lot of support from their local governments, and therefore they're not well adapted. They don't have that resilience to survive and thrive in a truly competitive market. It's okay behind the firewall, but let's see how they do outside. And yet, I'll put it to you that what Asia is in the context of hyper-competition hyper is like, it's like a gladiatorial arena. And imagine a gladiatorial arena. It's like a crucible of combat, a trial by fire, where those that emerge from the, the arena are super tough, are super adapted and super resilient. You know, it's survivor bias. If you take 100 potential ride-hailing apps or 100 potential e-commerce platforms like Alibaba, you, put, you, you let them do battle and 99 of them get killed off and you're left with one, the winner. You're left with the Highlander, so to speak. The winner of that battle emerges. You can be damn sure that that, startup is pretty tough has got it right and that's hyper competition you get the survivor bias which is that they're not being supported by any kind of subsidies but the survivor of all that reckless and ruthless competition cutthroat in many senses you know you go to china and the 996 which is you know the average chinese person works from nine in the morning to nine at night six days a week now, that was always the case. 
and the criticism was that that's fine until you know you started talking about creativity or access to markets and capital asia was always the warehouse of the world but now asia has capital asia has access to market and i'll talk about a to a in a minute now what happens is is you add 996 to billions of dollars of startup investment to technical expertise to some of the smartest people in the world now you have a formula where you are taking the the survivors of hyper competition and you're plugging them into that massive access to assets and markets and you have a very interesting model future of asia emerge and that is what is happening right now and i'll put it to you that if you want to understand the future of digital transformation it ain't in the valley because the valley doesn't have the kind of conditions of hyper competition that asia has and it's here in asia by virtue of the fact that the premium to survive is so high and the competition is so tough that when that winner goes on to play on the global platform for them it would be like playing in the junior leagues a great case in point air asia a company that i have the privilege and opportunity to work with recently and if you've uh, if you're a fan of asia air asia go and check out the the conversation i recorded for asia tech podcast with tony fernandez the ceo who's a fascinating figure quite maverick and uh take look at the economics of air asia so look at the demand economics and that is like so kuala lumpur the capital of, of uh malaysia is in a unique geographic position really only occupied similarly by maybe bangkok and singapore and that is that from kuala lumpur if you took a five-hour flight how many people could you access from kuala lumpur in a five-hour flight you can access three and a half billion people. That is half the world's population. If you took a similar flight from San Francisco, the valley, you could only access 500 million people. I know 500 million people is a lot of people. However, from Kuala Lumpur, you can access seven times as many in the same radius. What does that mean? It means that competition from Kuala Lumpur is cutthroat and excessive because the premium for getting it right is so much higher. So it means that if you want to understand, for example, the future of travel and what the future model of a digitally transformed travel company looks like, go to Kuala Lumpur rather than San Francisco. Now, if you look at the economics of travel, your average low-cost carrier today loses money on every ticket it sells. So if they were only ever sell seats, they would be in a loss. Yet, on top of the seats, they sell baggage fees. And on top of the baggage fees, premium seats, in-flight meals, all that stuff, even Wi-Fi access. And, and then you have, for example, leasing back the planes to other carriers. What does it mean? It means that a, a carrier like AirAsia, for example can actually be profitable and it makes its profit from ancillary sales, which is that whole range of services which you sell on top of the ticket. So a traditional airline 
will not be profitable as it stands. It makes its money from the upselling services. And if you look at, for example, Grab or Gojek, it's the same model that the margins on ride sharing are so small, it's hard to make money. And if you add in the customer acquisition costs, advertising costs, acquiring talent, hiring data scientists and so on, these guys are losing money. They have to make their money from upselling ancillary services because now the premium is higher. So the reason why you're going to see the future of digital transformation in travel come from Kuala Lumpur first before San Francisco is because these companies have no choice. They don't have any option but to transform themselves. They cannot rely on simply on the, the traditional pipeline model of an airline on its own. And the premium for getting it right, those three and a half billion customers is exceptionally high. So when you see Tony Fernandez, CEO of AirAsia, go on record and say, we are going to move from being an airline to a digital travel company. You've heard it here first. Not in the valley, but here in Asia, in particular Southeast Asia. And you talk about the movement of digital transformation in this context. Digital transformation really is the move from being a pipeline to a platform. Now, there goes with that a certain type of thinking. And if you want to get my, I, I wrote an ebook recently. And if you want to go and grab the ebook, you can get it from my website. And you can go to atp.show, Asia Tech Podcast, atp.show, and the ebook's there. You can go to my personal website, which is grahamdbrown.com, and get it there. And this really sort of contains examples, um, case studies of digital transformation. And really what it's about is answering this question. What is the structure of the company best suited to solving, com solving customer problems? Let me say that again, sorry. What is the structure of a company best suited to solving customer problems? Is that a pipeline or is it a platform? With that goes a certain type of thinking. So if you are an airline, you're about a pipeline, you're a control. Think of a pipeline. And the reason why I use a pipeline because it, it is a good analogy. It's all about efficiency and control. If you dig something out of the ground, you want to make sure that you do that as efficiently as possible. It doesn't leak and your competitors don't have access to it. You know, whether you're digging oil, mining rare earth metals, it's the same. If you go to these places, you know, they're surrounded in barbed wire and guys with guns. That's the pipeline model. You know, that's what traditional industrial era thinking is all about. Yeah, the platform model is very different. The platform model is how do we solve this customer problem in the best way? It's not necessarily as a pipeline, it's a platform where we bring in an ecosystem of partners to solve this problem. So if the problem is the customer journey, how do I get from Kuala Lumpur to Hong Kong? Or how do I get access to good content? Or how do I get the best beauty products? If that's the problem, then not one company can solve that problem. And if that was AirAsia, the challenge now becomes how do we not necessarily fly the customer to the cheapest, you know, with the cheapest model possible. 
but how do we sell all these different kind of services to the customer? And we might not be owning those services. So if you look at the platform model and what's emerging here from Asia, and you see that, for example, with the Gojeks and the AirAsias and the Alibabas of this world, is that the true platform model, what you'll find is that 95% of the value exists off payroll. Now, in the true pipeline model, everybody was on payroll. This was the functionally competent model. Everybody was organized in departments. So if you wanted to fly an airline, you had departments. And in those departments, there was a legal department and a procurement department and a marketing department. And they all had their own water coolers and they all talked to each other. And you pulled your resources and your skills in one department. However, today that doesn't work. You have this ecosystem of players and a lot of these people don't even belong to you. They happen to be part of the AirAsia or, you know, take your pick ecosystem because they want to help you solve the customer's problems. And so the question is, is what joins everybody? In the old world, it was these, these teams, these departmental teams where everybody was joined by payroll. We are the marketing department. This is the boss. The boss gives us the plan. We execute the plan. And to create a sense of purpose, they came up with these damn awful mission statements or even worse, those team bonding days, you know, where they go out into the, the woods for a day and shoot each other with paintball or they do those horrible, you know, trust building exercise where somebody has to fall backwards into the hands of their team. It's gimmicks. It's creating purpose where there is none. And I'll put it to you that the modern form of the company, the digitally transformed company, is not a built around functional competence, which are departments organized around skills and, and assets, but rather what I call tribes. Now, tribes are cross-functional teams, often small, arranged around specific goals. They're fluid. They may be there just for a small amount of time to solve a particular problem or launch a particular product. But they cut across. If you can imagine the, the structure of the company, where is in the pipeline model, everything's organized vertically, departments. And therefore, all the teams are vertical. Yet in the tribe model, these small cross-functional teams cut across every single department. And if you look, and this is why Asia is a great example. I'm just reading the Xiaomi way. Xiaomi are a, a handset manufacturer out of China, mobile handset manufacturer, who really started with nothing and built a brand of fans with nothing. And they talk about these small fluid teams that come and go and they exist for a specific purpose and then they'll easily disappear and regroup if necessary, which is very different from the departmental model. In, in these sort of tribe models, you can have somebody in procurement, somebody in accounts, somebody in product development, somebody in marketing. You can have fans of the product. You could have channel sales partners, legal people, all part of this team there to solve a problem. And this tribe 
is on a mission to solve that problem. And that's all they're there for. So it raises this question, how do you create tribes? How do you do that within your organization when traditionally you would have done that through the control of payroll? You know, if you wanted to get promoted, listen to your boss. However, how do you now exercise that kind of control when you don't owe that guy doesn't owe you anything? He happens to be a partner. Now, th this is where it comes to internal storytelling, and I'm a great believer that the future of podcasts are all about corporates. Now, podcasting for corporates is about planting a flag, it's creating that water cooler, whereas your department before had a water cooler and that's where people gathered and it had an identity based around the department. This is how we do because this is the department we belong to. And you had the natural interaction that happened because you had physically connected on the same floor, the same space, same desks and so on. Yeah, that's all distributed now. And I, I put it to you that the future model of the company is based around planting a flag, telling stories, creating a tribe out of those stories. And that could be a podcast, for example, because the telling of stories is how we create connection. And that is, therefore, you know, this whole sort of shift in storytelling from external to internal. External means we were a small department blasting out a story to a million people in the hope that some of them became customers. Some of those million strangers, we hope that some of those become our customers. Yet look at what's happening now. I mean, if you look at, for example, like Alibaba, Alibaba have Alipay and WeChat have payment systems as well. Gojek and Uber here in Asia all have payment systems. Every single company that is rising to the top here in Asia has a payment system. AirAsia has big pay. Now, what does that mean? It means that, for example, if I was AirAsia and I had 10 million people on my payment platform, and they may use it occasionally, they don't need to be using it every day. It means I know who these people are. And it therefore means that I don't have to spend millions of dollars on going out and finding customers, which is what the last 50 years was about. If you're a marketing manager, what you did was you put out an RFP for a pitch, a campaign to ad agencies, the creatives who would come in and do their pitch with the high fives and the slick presentations and all that stuff. And then you would write a check for the winning ad agency who had the best idea, the big idea and big ideas won awards at Cannes in the festivals for ad agencies and all that kind of stuff. And that's what it was for the last 50 years because really what it was about was pipelines, control. Again, going back to digging stuff out of the ground. Now, you might not be digging stuff out of the ground, but you may be controlling a TV set and the real estate on that TV set. And because it was so expensive to advertise on that, you better make sure that when you do do it, you get a good agency to do it for you. But all of that has changed. Now I know who those 10 million people are. So... In the past, I didn't know who my 10 million customers were. I had to pay an ad agency to blast people and interrupt them and say, hey, look, we're really cool. We're a, a very, you know, um, awesome airline. Please buy our tickets. Now I know who those people are. So why do I need to spend millions with an ad agency to blast them? So the whole era of the big idea is ending. 
And any agency that is relying on the big, big idea is, especially here in Asia, is dealing with an ever-increasing, ever-decreasing market. Xiaomi doesn't advertise. AirAsia spends very little advertising. Alibaba spends very little advertising because they all have millions of data sets about their customers. They know who they are. So what now changes is what they do with those advertising dollars. Instead of spending it on big ideas, they're spending it on big data. And this is the shift in Asia from big idea to big data. And what that means is what it's all about. And I know people say big data is the new oil and it works well with our pipeline analogy, digging stuff out the ground. Once you control big data, you control oil. But I say to you, that is not the case. And here's the reason why. Big data is not the new oil. Oil is limited by the supply. We dig it out the ground and we go to war over oil. It's that valuable to us. If oil was everywhere, if oil filled our oceans, we could extract it from the air, it was you know, sustainable as a, as a fuel source, there would be peace in the world. But there isn't. By some strange logic, they put oil in the place, in the middle of the world, under the desert, and as you know, the rest is history. Big data, however, is different. If I, for example, do a podcast like this and you listen to it, something somewhere has collected data about you. That could be, for example, you downloading that podcast from SoundCloud or you downloading that podcast from iTunes. You've generated data. And everything we do today, if you're listening to this on your phone, your phone has more computational capacity than the same computer that launched the Apollo 13 mission, right, to the moon, or any of the Apollo missions. It has that much data, and we're generating this data all the time, billions and billions of data sets, and it's only getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So what I'm saying is that big data is not the new oil because it's endless in supply, and we can willingly and freely generate as much of this as possible, and that is not the quality of oil. Oil is valuable because it's limited. Yet big data is endless. Which brings me to the point, what is limited and what is happening right now and why should we pay attention to Asia? What is limited is why we had the big idea in the first place and also why we have big data. And what is limited is attention. You see... Attention, think about it. it here, here's, a, here's a a test. Stand outside your local, uh, your local train station and hand out $100 bills. What's going to happen? Complete strangers are going to walk you by. Most people will blank you. Most people will think you're a freak or a weirdo. Most people might try and avoid your contact. They're not paying attention to you. And my point is, is that Unless somebody pays attention to you, you can't even give away money. Yet, let's say you had a bit of data. And I knew that of the next 100 people coming out of the train station, five of them are students. And I know students are skint because we've all been there and we don't have money. Just approach those guys and your hit rate will increase rapidly. Because I know 
that person's a student, I'll approach them and talk to them as a student. And they're likely to take the money from them. So big data, like big data, big idea advertising is not the goal in itself. And that's where we get it wrong. So in the old world, in the industrial world, the the biggest mistake a lot of brands made was thinking big idea was the goal. And this is where ad agencies won awards and you had the cans lions and all that nonsense. And that became the thing rather than winning the attention of the customer, which is what it should have been about. Winning awards or winning customers. And it's the same with big data. Big data is not the goal in itself. Big data is a tool like the big idea to capture the attention of a customer. And therefore, it's attention that is the new oil. Because think about the language of that we use to talk about attention. When you want somebody's attention, you want them to pay attention. Pay attention. Pay. Think about that. Attention carries a cost. If attention was freely available, if we had multiple streams of consciousness, multiple streams of attention, and could attend to many, many different things at the same time, there wouldn't be any cost. You could be listening to my voice now, and you could be writing an essay and watching Netflix. However, you can't do all of them at the same time. There is a cost. If you listen to me, you're not talking to your husband, or you're not doing the you might be doing the washing or you might be doing something else which you can't cram it all into the same space something has to pay there is a cost associated with it because it's limited in supply anything that's not limited in supply is free like data so even the language we use pay attention we know that attention carries a cost and therefore in our marketing Attention is the biggest cost. To win somebody's attention, go back to the $100 note example. The difference between having somebody's attention is the difference between not being able to give away money and being somebody to accept your money. And it's the same with talking to customers. You may have a really good idea, an amazing product. And it's worth a lot. And that's going to save somebody being money. So that's going to save. That's going to make somebody's life better. However, if that's per- if that person's not paying attention to you, you can't even give it to them free. So, what does that mean? It means that what is this all about? What is digital transformation about? It's about getting the attention of the customer because once we have their attention, we can understand what their problems are. And once we understand their problems, we can deliver them products, which is the other way around from how we've been doing it for the last 60 years. The pipeline industrial model of marketing has been find customers for our products. You have a product developed by the innovation or the product development department. You're the marketing department. It's your problem now. Find a way. Today, however, is different. In the digital era, we're not finding customers for our products. We're finding products for our customers. Think, for example, about Gojek. 
Now, Gojek started building customer competence around its ability to deliver a solution to the problem of traffic in Jakarta, which is horrendous. And it found the best way of doing this was a ride-hailing service built around motorbikes. And by developing that customer competence and winning the attention of their customers and building a payment app that allowed them to develop big data around their customers, A, they don't have to go and spend millions in advertising. But B, they're also building a platform where now they can exercise customer competence. Now they are more competent at understanding customer problems than the next guy. And that's where it shifts from being customers for products to, in the digitally transformed company, products for customers. That's how what once started as a ride-hailing app can offer maids, massages, and movies, stuff which a lot of people think don't make sense. And even if you look at the economics of how we value these companies, in the old school model, it doesn't make sense. You know, a lot of these brands, companies, were valued on their ability to supply. So it's supply-side economics, which basically means, for example, you know, if you take any economics textbook, the valuation, and if you go to a bank and ask for money, they'll value on your, your office, your assets, the machinery you own, your inventory, cash in the bank. It's very traditional, pipeline model. What do you own? And therefore, if you go bankrupt or you go bust, how can we get that money back? That's how they valued companies, and that's how they assessed your risk. However, you know, we're moving from a model in digital transformation from the industrial model, which is just-in-time manufacturing, which is where you have a, a fantastic factory and able to serve a customer efficiently. And a factory, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean making widgets. It means anything in the industrial model. It could be a law firm. It could be an ad agency. These are factories by their DNA. So we're moving from just-in-time to not even mine. Just-in-time is about very efficient factors of production. Not even mine is about none of that. Gojek doesn't own anything. It owns a platform, which physically doesn't exist. If Gojek went out of business what would the receivers be able to sell off at an auction? Nothing. They don't own bikes. They don't own cars. They don't own the food courts that they're selling in their GoFood festival. They don't own the maids. They don't even own the movies. And this is the shift from supply side to demand side economics. And that's why when people look at the valuations of Grab or Gojek or Uber, a lot of people criticize them and say it doesn't make sense. This is like the internet.com model all over again. Yet what they fail to do, especially when they look at these models here in Asia, is understand that this is a different model entirely. This is a model where the valuation is how big the, these businesses can grow on the demand side. Take Airbnb, for example. Airbnb now does more bookings than your average hotel chain, and yet it owns nothing. It's the not even mine inventory. 
how do you value that? This is a company worth $40 billion. And it goes back to this point is once you have demonstrated customer competence, once you've built big data, once you have shown that you can now leverage a platform, you can sell in anything. So what then happens in terms of your valuation is that if you add in extra services, you're not actually adding in extra extra assets. Valuation is now based on your ability to supply that whole market. And that's what's happening here in Asia. Because look at the, the macro numbers. Look at the macro numbers of what's going on here in Asia. And we haven't even started yet. So let's go back to travel. And this is why I think a lot of these Asian platforms are seriously undervalued. Take travel. We talked about Kuala Lumpur and the five-hour radius, three and a half billion people. And yet, look at the data. So PATA, which is like an authority on um, Asian travel, it says that tourism in Asia will grow another 53% to half in the next five years alone. So from 2019 to 2024, tourism in Asia will grow an extra $300 billion. And think about that. Five years, $300 billion. And the macro factors for that are you have on the one hand the growth of Asia, which is apparent. Asia is getting wealthier. And what I wanted to start off talking about, which we're talking about now, is A to A, Asia to Asia trade. Now, there's a reason for this. In the industrial era, Asia was the warehouse of the world. I mean, you know, I first came to Asia in 1994, 95, and I think one of the first things people said when they knew I was going to Asia was, get me a cheap Rolex watch. That's what Asia was famous for. It's pipeline, very efficient way of producing a cheap Rolex watch. I'm not saying it's a real one, obviously, but a cheap one that looked like a Rolex watch, and they got very good at it. And then from that, they learned how to now build phones and AI and so on. Yet there's another part of the story, which is the Asian middle class. By 2030, two-thirds of the world's middle class should be living here in Asia. Think about that. Two-thirds of the world's main consumer bracket will be in Asia. So why today, Asia does more trade with itself than the rest of the world. What does that mean? It means that Asia is okay simply supplying Asia. If the West decided to fade off into obscurity after it built its wall or it brexited out of existence, then Asia will still go on. It doesn't need the wealthy families of Europe and Americas to survive anymore. Asia can get by okay on its own and doing all right, thank you very much. Which means put all these macro factors together. In the context of travel, Asians are traveling within Asia. You know, I remember when I lived in, when I lived in Japan in the 90s, if you were a young Japanese female of university age, and I used to teach them uh, English, that one of the first things you did as soon as you got any kind of money was with your friends, you'd get on a tour package and go to Milan, Paris, and maybe Rome or London, 
in like a four or five day tour and the, the, naturally there'll be like tour of like the gucci factory and the prada factory because that's what they like doing very few japanese if ever considered going to asia because it wasn't seen as any kind of sense of arrival yeah what's happening now is a lot of asians are traveling to asia and this is this asia to asia trade i mean if you go for example, now is Golden Week in Japan. Here in Singapore, there are a ton of Japanese in central Singapore. If you go to Tokyo, for example, there is a word which is bakugai, which is from the Japanese conjugation of explosion and shopping. And it's a word specifically for busloads of Chinese tourists descending on a Louis Vuitton or Gucci store in Tokyo and just cleaning it out. Obviously, it's... It, you know, for the Japanese, is a big phenomenon at the start and obviously reported in the media. There's a bit of, you know, negativity towards the Chinese as, as it's stoked in the media between Japan, Japan and China, as it has been for many generations. Um, but it's, it's a real thing. So in the context of travel, this is what exciting, excites me. Because I think travel is just one of, it's sort of like the vanguard, the leading edge of digital transformation. Because it's Asia. Because the premium for getting it right is so high. And then you have this macro trend of the Asian middle classes where, you know, we haven't even seen the full extent of their spending power kick in yet. We're only just starting to see the tip of the spear. And, you know, what then happens to all of those travel companies? What we're seeing now where... Travel companies like AirAsia are leading the way. If they get that right, if they successfully, you know, successfully take progressive steps in the digital transformation journey, and they are ready, and you add in the Asia to Asia trade, what you then have is a company with huge potential. And it doesn't matter that they're Malaysian and they don't have access to Silicon Valley. It doesn't matter. What matters is they have access to billions of customers and a business model that works. So that is why I think we have to watch Asia for the future of certain vertical sectors. Agreed. There are areas where Asia is not strong and Silicon Valley still has the lead. But let me put it to you this way. If this decade... 2010 to 2019 was all about how Asia dominated hardware. I'll put it to you that the next one is a different story. 2020 to 2029 will be about how Asia dominates services because it's now an execution play. AI, for example, all the big breakthroughs have been discovered. Now it's just execution. The future of AI will come out of China. The future of healthcare will come out of China. The future of travel will come out of Malaysia. Who knows what else this is going to touch? And that's why I think the next 10 years put all these macro factors together and you have one of the most exciting trends that will hit the world, and that is digital transformation, in particular, Asia as a service.
that is something that I think the West is not ready for. We're not ready for Chinese brands leading the world in healthcare. But that is what's happening now. You have companies like Ping An Financial, who are a bank, a bank, who now run services like Ping An Good Doctor. They're connecting customers with doctors. What kind of bank does that? That's the digitally transformed bank. They run a service called One Minute Clinic, where you can walk in and get tested in a minute on a high street. What kind of hospital thinks like that? Which brings us back to the beginning. It's not about functional competence. If you're a hospital, you're running on the same model as, you know, as as 100 years ago, 200 years ago even. Like the hospital today looks like it did in Florence Nightingale's time. Yet that's functional competence. If you go to the foreshore of Singapore and look at the skyscrapers, you know, you've got Marina Bay Sands behind you. Look the other way to all the skyscrapers. And I did this the other day, DBS, Standard Chartered, ANZ, UOB, HSBC, Bank of America. You have 20 skyscrapers together. And what does it say? Almost all of them are banks. They're all jammed in together, looking at each other and thinking, oh, what are those guys doing? It doesn't matter because it doesn't matter what those guys are doing. It matters what Alibaba and Gojek and Ping An are doing because what they're doing over there, they're going to start doing over here. In time, they'll start showing up. They'll start showing up in your sector and then there's trouble. And I don't think the world is ready for that. Asia as a service. My name's Graham Brown. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.